Our next speaker is Professor Ken Nielsen, and he will give a lecture on biology and potential life in the Martian context. Ken is the Wrigley Chair in Environmental Sciences and Professor of Earth Sciences and Biological Sciences at USC. He is a member of the MSL Mission Science Team and NASA's Mars Exploration Science Working Group. And he also happens to be a co-lead of this KISS study program. His numerous honors and recognitions include elections as fellow of the AGU and the AAAS. And Thomson Reuters in 2014 recognized him as among the top 1% cited scientists in his field. He is a leading expert in the study of life at high pH and in the deep subsurface, as well as geology and possible life on Mars, just to mention a few. I can't think of a better person than Ken to give today's lecture on possible biology in the Martian context. Please welcome. That's a difficult introduction to live up to. Uh, thank you, Pin. It, I'm delighted to be here. When uh, Yuck got in touch with me and asked me would I be so kind as to participate, I know nothing, virtually nothing, about methane, and I know precious little about Mars anymore, but I figured this is the greatest way to learn. Okay. Uh, Yuck and Pin asked me if I would give a rather remedial biology lecture to put people on the same page for the next few days of discussion, and I agreed to do that. I'm, in fact, delighted to do that. Uh, what I want to do is talk about the properties of life and at the end of this say how much sense does it make that there's really something going on or did go on on Mars, because we'll, uh, we'll delve into those problems as we go along. And, of course, every time I teach this stuff, we ask the students what is life and we get a hundred different answers, right? It's just hard to define. Second issue is does it have to be like earthly life? We're gonna, everything we know about life is based on what, what we know in the textbooks and what we're doing. Uh, why would it have to be like earthly life? Could it be slightly different? Could it be very different? We don't know. Things to keep in mind. If it was different, would we detect it? Would we be looking for the wrong thing and the life could be there right under our eyes and we don't see it? Uh, this is, uh, and can you thus devise, uh, Dan will remember our long talks about this, a non-Earth-centric strategy for life detection, something that would allow you to see life uh, even if it wasn't like what we're used to measuring. You have to, you have to divest yourself of DNA and RNA and protein and look for more general features, I think. <coughs> and are there universal fe features of this life? Uh, and most importantly, there are lots of universal features, but if you can't measure them, I don't think they're worth a damn. Okay, they, uh, they, you have to be able to measure this in order to make a statement. So, let's, let's delve into this a little bit. What are the characteristics? I would argue that complexity of structure, uh, both elemental composition, monomer composition, things like chirality, are dead-on indicators of life. 
okay? It doesn't have to be like earthly life. It just has to be complex. It has to be recognizable as complex. You can make these measurements. You can look at them. Uh, the example I always like are the amino acids. There are many, many different amino acids possible. You can do all the thermodynamic calculations and say which ones ought to be on the meteorites, and those are the ones you find, and they're not chiral. If you look at life, it makes just exactly the 20 amino acids it wants in completely the wrong levels of <laughs> composition, and it's a dead ringer for life on our own planet, which is remarkably reproducible. <coughs> so in this complexity argument, we would argue that cellular structure is a first key item. You have to separate the inside from the outside or you're not going to be able to make and conserve energy. You'll have very complex machines, which we call enzymes, uh, protein catalysts. The elemental composition is a great way of looking at things. If you look at the elements that make up life on Earth, those six or seven major elements are literally not found in any mineral on the planet. Now, you can argue that there are a few exceptions to this, but they're usually found in coal mines and places like that that are, uh, are relics of uh, past life. <coughs> they, but every time we find life, if you would go in and ask a very simple question, what's the elemental composition, you would see that it was virtually the same from one to the other to the other. Why do we do such complicated things when there are some fairly easy ways of looking? And, of course, the proteins, nucleic acids, and lipids uh, are remarkably complex. If you found the same protein twice in terms of its structure, the same nucleic acid in terms of its structure, either you have a contaminant on your spacecraft or there's something really interesting where you are. Okay. So, let's look at complexity of function. <coughs> I like to focus on three things, the uptake of fuel or food, the metabolism of that, and the excretion of waste. These are things that are easily measured. They're things that life does really effectively, and you can, f and it, they're very complex functions. They're often functions that defy regular chemistry because these enzymes lower the activation energy and allow things to go on that you wouldn't have expected. <coughs> the enzyme catalysts speed up the reactions, Transport systems take up the food, whatever it is. Complex metabolism converts it to biological energy. And transport systems dispose of the waste. Virtually all of these things are possible to measure. If you have extant life, they're going on. If you had extinct life, there will be signals left behind that those processes occurred. <coughs> and <coughs> the observable environmental effects just listening to Bethany, it's mind-boggling, you know, what you know about Mars. The question is, can you tease any of the stuff that you know about Mars out and blame it on biology? And uh, this, would be the, this would be one of the goals we'd like, especially when it comes to methane. The, again, <clears throat> this becomes a biophysics problem, a geophysics problem, really, because these reactions all go on if they, if they are energy yielding reactions, but what life does is speed those reactions up fast enough that it steals the energy out of the environment. And this is what we're talking about here. 
We'll hear from Barbara later about kinetic isotope effects and ways of looking at the record for these things that occurred in the past. Uh, and finally, we can look at non-random movement. You might uh, think that this isn't a universal feature, but in fact it is. All life moves. Sometimes you have to look inside the cell to see the movement. But there's a huge non-random movement, in my opinion, is, is just a part of life. You can't escape it. When a cell has to divide, it has to move everything in the right way so it divides properly. So. Those are my characteristics. You see, I leave behind interesting things like replication, evolution, and this and that, which I don't think you can measure. If you could measure them, that would be great, but I don't think you can. You don't know if an organism is dividing in five minutes or a thousand years. And probably there are organisms that span almost those ranges. So what's general? Structure and chemistry. <coughs> We could look at the structures, we could do chemistry, the thermodynamics and kinetics. In my view, kinetics is the thing that really distinguishes life from non-life. The ability to speed up a reaction so fast that you either consume something faster than diffusion can account for it, or you, can, you make something faster than it can diffuse away, and you make gradients from this. <coughs> and Again, non-random movement. I think uh, this is something that we, we forget. We, we, we want to keep our eye on this. If we go to Bethany's uh, perchlorate salts, is there any, are there any uh, clues that in here there's something going on? I don't know. So what does life require? That this, given those general things, enzymes work in solution. They do not work as solids. Virtually any enzyme catalyst that we know of must be in a solvent. We're all focused on water, including me. If you have organic life, it should be water. There may be other solvents, uh, but there better be some of it present if you're going to have life. We need a source of nutrients. <coughs> this is particularly interesting to me when you talk about Mars, because you need electron donors and electron acceptors on the surface of Mars, there seems to be a paucity of, uh, of electron donors, okay? There are plenty of electron acceptors, <coughs> and we'll get into that. You need structural nutrients in terms of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and I will circle here nitrogen. Nitrogen still is a, uh, a very interesting thing. There was a wonderful paper by Stern et al. last a few months ago reporting nitrogen on the Martian surface in the form of nitrate. Uh, interesting data, but uh, not very convincing numbers, and it hasn't been followed up with a lot of other numbers. I would like to see some more numbers. Nitrogen is the bugaboo over and over for me as a biologist because you need a lot of nitrogen to have, have life going on, and we don't see it. The other problem is that nitrate is in fact a source of nitrogen, but if you don't have a lot of electron donors around, you're, you have trouble converting it to ammonia. Ammonia is what life really uses, reduced nitrogen, and you have to account for that. <coughs> and you need functional nutrients, and here I add this little interesting uh, thing at the end, it says plus metals, because so, so much 
living biochemistry uh, is done by metallic containing, metal containing proteins. And we need those present to make life work. So <coughs> now I have to give you a very brief lesson in, uh, in biology here. And <coughs> what is respiration? Yay. Here it is. <laughs> okay. Uh, all life extracts electrons from whatever you happen to be eating. In this case, we take the enzymes are used to extract the electrons and put them on an electron carrier and move them to a cell membrane in which they go from one potential down to another to an electron acceptor, which we all know if we're talking about respiration is oxygen. This is how life works. We all do it. All animals and plants respire using oxygen. <coughs> and the voltage between this electron and the oxygen is what you use to, to turn chemical energy into biological energy. Simple as can be. And this is the animal plant world. But bacteria are far more clever. Bacteria can use a whole series of other electron acceptors, <coughs> one of which is CO2. <coughs> sulfate in the ocean, nitrate in freshwater. These are the, the range. And this is what prokaryotes, bacteria, and archaea do. They can use all of these other electron acceptors. And so I was complaining there aren't, uh, that uh, there's a paucity of electron donors, but electron acceptors there's a great excess of. <coughs> And I add here iron and manganese oxides because I'm going to introduce something at the end of this talk that I think we should be thinking about. <coughs> and that is the solid electron acceptors, those that aren't soluble uh, but are very abundant, especially in the Martian uh, uh, terrain here. So what are the fuels of life? <coughs> we can put this as Jim Morgan would do on an electric scale and we can say organic carbon is a very good electron donor. But hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide, elemental sulfur, these are all electron donors that can be used by, by bacteria. Not any of us boring eukaryotes, but the bacterial <coughs> community can use almost anything that they can steal an electron from, they will take. And these inorganic fuels are majorly generated from hydrothermal reactions or via anaerobic respiration. This is, the, this is the map of what fuels might be around. If I'm going to an environment on Earth to study, the first thing we do is see which of those is present. That gives you a first idea of what might be the energy sources driving that environment. <coughs> In terms of the oxidants, we put it on the same voltage scale. Some, sorry, <coughs> the, this should say, yeah, this is right. So the electron acceptors, <coughs> of course, oxygen is the best one, but the microbial world will use a whole range of other uh, oxidants here. And <coughs> while oxygen is the best and it's used by all eukaryotes, it wasn't here for a couple of billion years ago, so probably life wasn't using this at the start. <coughs> and the inorganic compounds, again, are used only by the prokaryotes. These days we add things like chlorinated hydrocarbons and all these other nasty things we produce 
Uh, we should add perchlorate to this list. It's a perfectly good electron acceptor. <coughs> and if you put this together, and we put the relative voltages over here for the fuels and the relative <coughs> voltages here for the electron acceptors, and we uh, draw an arrow from any electron donor to an electron acceptor, and that arrow goes downward in slope, that means you're going to get energy out of this reaction, and there will be some bacteria that makes a living by doing that. Okay, that's the rule of, of bacterial life. And I just point this out because of the methanogens that are sitting at the top. Hydrogen is something we can generate pretty readily, both geophysically and geochemically. <coughs> the methanogens uh, are good candidates here, I think. We could get iron reducers, which we now know exist. We can get nitrate reducers. <coughs> and of course, we can get the aerobes. Most energy, least energy, and this is an important concept. If you don't get much energy, then a small amount of biomass can have a huge Im impact. These things, when they're growing, take lots more turns of the cycle to make an ATP than does this one down here. So a small amount of biomass doesn't mean nothing's going on. It means <coughs> that maybe a lot's going on by a small amount of biomass here. <coughs> Again, if I'm going out to an environment on our own planet, the first thing we do is measure these and measure these, and it sets the limits for what's going on. You say, whoa, this isn't happening because there's no manganese. And you can get a lot of first level information simply by this kind of stuff. And I think we're gonna get that for Mars as we go on. <coughs> so, uh, I just mentioned the Mitchell hypothesis here. Some of you will know this until you're in your sleep. Others will say that this mechanism <coughs> of how we turn electron flow into, into biochemical energy is the way that life really works on the planet. <coughs> so again, we have electron flow, we have a charge separation. <coughs> this is the absolute necessity. Electron flow is what runs life on our planet. The energy from this drives the reactions of life, and from the smallest bacteria to the largest animal and the largest tree, everybody's using the same mechanism. <coughs> How does it work? <coughs> it works on the membrane. This is a key thing. Electrons aren't soluble. They're delivered to the membrane, and they travel down the membrane, <coughs> and that electron flow is used to drive protons from the inside of the cell to the outside of the cell. And that proton gradient is essentially the biological capacitor that runs life. This is the same for every organism we know, and it's a brilliant invention using this proton motive force <coughs> to make, make energy. So, <coughs> electron donors, I hate to keep it repeating this, but you must know it, okay? That uh, <coughs> electronics, you got it? There'll be a test. Like there will be a test, yes. So we have the proton motive force here, and what that means is these proteins, protons desperately want to get back into the cell. <coughs> and we let them come back into the cell, and we just couple it to an enzyme called ATPase, which when this, I think it's usually two to three protons flow through this 
enzyme, it converts ADP to ATP, which is the universal biological energy source. Your mitochondria do this in your cells, the plant mitochondria do it, bacteria do it, archaea do it. Every living organism on this planet that, that does metabolism uses this reaction. <coughs> now once you've got this membrane, <coughs> so I should say that the ATP is made here, this is the trick. This is the magic that life uses. But bacteria, again, are more clever. They also use, without using ATP, they directly use this proton flux to run the flagella of the bacteria. So the movement of the bacteria is, again, done by proton motive force. <coughs> Furthermore, <coughs> the proton motive force can be used to transport things in and out of the cell. As the protons flow back in, you can couple the transport of food in, you can couple the transport of waste out, and you can get rid of toxic materials by the protons flowing in and the waste being pumped out. The universal thing in microbial life, and all of these things are stuff that we've talked about measuring. Waste, food, <coughs> energy. So let's look at this. The NAD, uh, is this is the electron carrier. <coughs> And I want to point out one thing that this isn't just about heterotrophic metabolism, it's also about phototrophic metabolism. That light is an energy source that couples right into the Mitchell mechanism. And one thing I would, we always talk about light on Mars, that there's plenty of, of solar flux. What's missing at the surface of Mars are these electron donors that could be used because Photons aren't going to supply the mass for the electron, and you need an electron donor here to drive this phototrophic reaction. <coughs> the organics give you organotrophy, feeds into the Mitchell mechanism. The inorganics can go by chemolithotrophy, feeding into the same thing. This is the uniting mechanism of all life. Okay, this mechanism of converting electron flow into ATP, into a proton motive force that can give you everything that microbial life needs, basically. Sorry, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure, but you can't. You, but you can't make. Uh, you can't make electron donors just with photons. Okay, you need an, this is something we keep forgetting, that you need an electron donor for every photosynthetic reaction. And I, it's a really good thing to keep in, in mind when you come to Mars, because you're gonna need these reduced compounds. I would argue that at least <coughs> for a long time on Mars, probably since the surface was oxidized, photosynthesis is just about impossible, <coughs> because there's just no good supply of electron donors. Yeah, but then you have to get the light there. Well, you don't need light. You can use gamma rays or some other radioactive decay. Well, I would defy you to find an organism that grows on gamma rays, but maybe we can find one. Yeah. Uh, I think the word Mike's referring to is the, uh, the work on the radiolysis production exactly of hydrogen right. from radiolysis. Right. Ah, fair enough. No, well, in yeah. fact, I mean, over here are all these organisms that pick up reducing power. 
These are the chemolithotrophs that will use those products, but they, but they won't use, uh, as far as we know, gamma radiation directly. There's the indirect products. Well said, yeah, I agree. So one thing that, uh, that we know now, this is our diagram of energy coming in, electrons to the membrane, ATP production, and instead of oxygen, we have a chunk of metal oxide here. <coughs> and we swim up to that and we try to make this reaction go. And the membrane's designed so that electrons don't go through it. And so this becomes impossible. <coughs> you just can't accomplish this. And this is a no-no. So all the textbooks said about 20 years ago. And work that really started at JPL about <laughs> 20 years ago. Uh, has ended up now with a very nice set of mechanisms where on many bacteria, they have the uh, inner membrane where the electrons flow. They have decaheme cytochromes. These are cytochromes with 10 heme groups in them <coughs> that take the electrons through the outer membrane of the cell. They have another decaheme cytochrome that will interact with a solid substrate <coughs> and the electrons are delivered to the outside. What this does is open up a metabolic window that didn't exist before, okay? The metabolic window is that solid electron acceptors out here are unavailable to biological life, and it just ain't true. We're finding literally hundreds of bacteria that are now capable of taking the electron flow and allowing it to continue by transporting the electrons to the outside in the absence of any other electron acceptor. This is really cool if you're thinking about Mars and other places where you see a ton of oxidized things sitting on the surface. There's plenty of oxidant, and in fact, it's available. So you keep that in mind, I think, looking at, at what uh, the life situation is here. And it didn't take long for students to say, well, heck, if a chunk of iron oxide could do that, why don't we just put an electrode there? And sure enough, you can substitute the iron or manganese oxide with a solid electrode and show that bacteria can be grown with the only thing to breathe as an anode electrode. This is really wild, okay? <coughs> so let's go back to what life requires. Uh, it requires a solvent, <coughs> requires a source of energy, the structural nutrients, and the functional nutrients. The source of energy just got bigger in the sense of opening up a window of a lot of electron acceptors. <coughs> and what will sustain life on Earth? It's a reasonable question if we're gonna ask what might sustain life on Mars. Water, the electron flow, we'll talk about the photons along with an electron donor, inorganics and organics, any of those would be acceptable but they're in short supply on Mars, okay? I think uh, that the, the photic reaction isn't gonna work, except as Mike says, to produce some other compounds that might act as electron acceptors, electron donors. The inorganics, <coughs> their bacteria use a wide variety of these, but again, other than hydrogen, uh, they're in pretty short supply on Mars, as far as we know. The organics, uh, okay, we've had some exciting sightings of organics, and those really are exciting, but they're, they're not at a level that would allow one to think of it being used as an energy source for life. 
What's deeper is a really good question, and I'm very excited about the possibility of drilling here. So, <coughs> whoops. <coughs> Point out one thing here, that the inorganics, <coughs> uh, there are only two of them that are gases. Oxygen, of course, is probably the reason we can live in three dimensions as complex organisms on this planet because once you get out of the water, <coughs> uh, you have to have a gas to breathe. So, methanogens can do it with CO2, we can do it with oxygen here. The rest of these are all dissolved salts. They're all dissolved in water. We need water to have these reactions going, okay? And then there are these solids, which we call extracellular electron transport. And I'll just, this now has become an almost common term in about the 10 labs that are working on this in the world. <coughs> EET is well documented for the iron and manganese oxides. It's well known. It's well documented for soluble metals that become insoluble. Things like uranium. You reduce uranium and it turns into an insoluble salt. You have to do that outside the bacterial cell. So this mechanism is used for things like uranium, chromium, selenium, things that become insoluble when you reduce them. <coughs> it's well documented for microbes that grow on reduced solids. This is now from the last five or six years that there are plenty of bacteria that use these extracellular enzymes to pull electrons out of iron sulfides and other things. <coughs> and it's well documented for microbes that grow on electrodes, the anodes as electron acceptors, or the cathodes as electron donors. And, well, probably 10 years ago, you would have been burned at the stake as a microbiologist for putting this slide up. And now it's, uh, it's all the labs working on it have corroborated these things. This is interesting stuff because it's not so hard to have a supply of electron, of electric uh, energy <coughs> and figure out how this, these kind of probabilities and possibilities open up whole new metabolic windows for life. And we should keep it in mind, I think. So, in summary, what can we learn by studying the Earth that'll help us over here? And I would say, I haven't mentioned it, but life is damn tough. Almost any, any condition we dream of on Earth that is compatible with a carbon-carbon bond bacterial microbes will be growing there. That's an important lesson. Life is very tenacious. We get to the deep subsurface and we find bacteria still living that are doing fine, hundreds of millions of years old and older, I think, as we, as we keep going. <coughs> Life is so metabolically diverse, it literally eats and breathes anything it can get its hands on and uh, and even more now with the ele extracellular electron transport. And life is intimately connected with the geosphere. And uh, again, in awe of Bethany's talk here, just trying to understand where you might tease out the role of life in some of these processes, if there is a role. <coughs> and we'll end with what we need to learn about Mars to see if life either is or ever was there. And this uh, is where the questions start, I think.
and uh, you couldn't have said this enough times for me, Bethany, but the, I, I think the history of water on Mars is absolutely critical to our thinking about when life might have come. We can't do it without a solvent. I think the types and abundances of electron donors over time is equally important. You know, I, I don't know how you get to these answers, but I'd like to hear the, the group here. Uh, this one uh, is critical as far as I'm concerned for the existence of life. <coughs> the types and abundances of electron acceptors, I think, are, are much easier to come to. We already see a great complement of them on the surface of Mars. And my guess is as we go down into the subsurface, uh, this will become much more clear. And <coughs> a detailed analysis of Martian minerals and structural materials is, is going to be very revealing to me, I think. The, uh, what, the elemental analyses of these, the organic analyses, uh, looking for organics, and you'll hear later from Barbara about stable isotopes. Uh, a lot of the clues of what went on in the past are hidden in some of the minerals and the, the other molecules that are there. <coughs> and I'm going to end right there. I'll be happy to have questions. Uh, thank you very much.